All right, so we know the story of the golden calf. We want to finish that now. Let us. I mean, you can spend a lot of time on it, but it's all right. So, let's just story of the golden calf. As I mentioned, it's just a story within a story. Well, we'll start with page 186, chapter 33. Story within a story. The large, the frame, the larger frame, is this is this story of standing at Sinai, uh, accepting the Torah, and then that continues with the building of the Mishkan. In fact, the Torah itself, that is the tablets of the tablets, of, called the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments or whatever, is is written on these tablets and the Torah says the tablets are housed inside the Mishkan, inside an ark. And the ark is the, inside the Mishkan. Not only is the ark inside the Mishkan, but the more important point is that it's obvious that the ark is the critical vessel of the Mishkan. The one who makes this point is the Ramban. Nachmanides in his commentary points out, which is self-evident, I think, when you read the description of the Mishkan, first of all, the ark is the first thing mentioned. Let's start with that. And, but the, the reason for the ark is given as it will be the place, says the Torah, says God in chapter 25, from which I speak, even more than speak, the no'adati l'chasham. No'adati means I will meet you there. In fact, the Mishkan, the, the name for the Mishkan, synonymous name for the Mishkan, in the Torah is not so much, Mishkan is a term that the Torah doesn't use it sometimes, but the other term that it uses probably more often I didn't check the numbers, but I think it's more often, is the term Oel Moed, the tent of meeting. So the point of the, what we call the Mishkan, is to be the point of contact between God and the people. For the Ramban, in his commentary on the Torah, that is the key point of the Mishkan. The Ramban emphasizes that the idea of the Mishkan in the Torah is the place from which God speaks. I would add to this Ramban, maybe the Ramban himself says it, I don't know, it wouldn't surprise me, that the idea of because in the Torah the God speaks first at Sinai and then God continues to speak after Sinai from the Mishkan so the Mishkan is a continuation of, of the revelation of Sinai and I would add that afterwards much later after Israel possesses the land and they build the temple and they set up the institutions of, 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 of government one of the institutions of government detailed in the book of Devarim is the uh, court. Torah speaks about the high court. If you have a problem, you don't have an answer, you go to the place where God is found, the high court is there, and they're going to tell you what the, you know, what the, what the rule is. They're going to tell you how to, how to proceed. So, the court, the Sanhedrin, in the Mishnah, Tomorrow speaks about the Sanhedrin, where's the, where's, where's the Sanhedrin located? So the Sanhedrin is located on the temple grounds and the, the place that the Sanhedrin is located, it's very striking, is called Lishkat HaGazit. Lishkat HaGazit. Familiar with Lishkat HaGazit? Lishkat HaGazit is the hall, the place on the temple grounds where the, temp, where the Sanhedrin meets. 
It's actually interesting that the name of the place is Lishkada Gazit. I think my wife suggested this once to me. It's an interesting name. That Gazit is something that is hewn. The Torah says that you're not permitted to build the altar out of hewn stones. In fact, the book of Kings says that when Solomon built his temple, there was no iron implements heard in the whole temple grounds, actually. But in the Torah it says you can't make the altar out of hewn stones. The reason is because you use an implement of war and the temple is a place where we don't want to be connected to, to violence. The temple is a place of peace and so we don't want connections to violence. So the Torah forbids the hewn stone to be used because it's cut with iron. And it's forbidden to build the, temp- the altar out of hewn stone. So the Lishkata Gazit means the place which is built out of, out, of, out of hewn stone. So the point would be then that the Lishkata Gazit is on the temple grounds. The Sanhedrin is on the temple grounds, but it's not in properly part of the temple. It's connected to the temple, but it's not actually, it has a different rule than the other part of the temple. Having said all that, the, I w- I'm, I'm emphasizing the opposite point that the Sanhedrin is located on the temple grounds. And I think the idea of that is the following, that in the Torah God speaks at Sinai and God speaks after Sinai. Then when you come into the land, so God is not speaking anymore. I mean, there's prophecy. But in terms of normative law, this is how the Talmud understands it in any event. The Talmud makes a big deal of this, that once you're in the land, well, I say after, after Sinai, or after the experience of Sinai in the desert, that is, after that experience of receiving the law, from that point on, the law is determined not by God, but determined by uh, human beings who interpret God's word. And the highest court is called the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is actually located on the temple grounds. I would say that the idea being that from this point on, the human beings, the interpreters of the law, continue to uh, dispense, or to continue to study first, and then to... Uh, put forth their view of what God of how God continues to speak the idea of the study of Torah is this the way in which God continues to speak so it's actually a very important point it has a very deeply religious dimension to it God continues to speak I would say in the temple God continues to uh, to uh, command to challenge us to command us etc in any event my point getting back to the Chumash the point I'm making is that when you look at the book of Exodus you see that it's the second half of the book of Exodus you have the revelation of Sinai the, the, the laws there's normative law, the Ten Commandments and then afterwards you have the instruction to build the Mishkan and you have more commandments, Mishpatim then you have instruction to build the Mishkan that goes up to chapter 31 chapter 35 to the end 35 to 40 inclusive is the description of the actual building of the Mishkan which is very similar to the instructions almost word for word the same actually with very small differences so the point is that in the middle you have the instructions to build the Mishkan you have the building of the Mishkan but the instructions end in chapter 31 the building is chapter 35 so what happens in between so what happens in between is the golden calf the golden calf disrupts the building of the Mishkan 
This is actually a very important point. I want to, this is actually important, not just about the golden calf. It's an important point in general, a literary point, about what I would stories within stories. When you have a story within a story, such as the golden calf, so what that forces us to do is that when you're reading the inner story, you're also always thinking, what is the relationship between the inner story and the uh, outer story? I'll give you an example of this, actually, because uh, it's a good example. But, that, but for example, I'll give you an example within the Golden Calf episode. We all know that when Moshe comes down the mountain, he sees the people dancing around the Golden Calf, and he breaks the tablets, smashes the tablets. Okay? So that is a very shocking, dramatic uh, moment. Because the tablets are written by God, and the work is that tablets are the tablets of God, the writing is the writing of God. And Moshe, nonetheless, takes these tablets and he smashes them. So it's a, it's a very audacious thing to do. And that's true if you just read the chapter in and of itself. You don't have to read anything else. If you read that, that event, it strikes you right away as being very dramatic and very powerful. But when you read that in the context of the, of the larger narrative, that is to say, what comes before and what comes after, suddenly it takes on a different dimension, an additional dimension, which is this. When Moshe breaks the tablets, the, the, before he breaks the tablets, we, we, we pointed this out earlier, the Torah says Moses came down the mountain carrying with him the tablets written on all sides. And the Torah says the tablets, the writing, the tablets were the tablets of God and the writing was the writing of God inscribed upon the tablets. That's what the Chumash says. Now, when you read it in and of itself, you say it's a very, it's a very holy thing, and then Moshe, Moshe gonna, doesn't ask permission. Moshe breaks the tablets. What an audacious thing to do. That's true. But when you read it in the context of the larger narrative, it takes on a different meaning completely, which is this, the very important point, and good introduction to what we're going to look at now. The, the, the Mishgan is built by human beings. The Torah makes a big deal about this, not just built by human beings, but the Torah emphasizes very greatly that the human beings who are chosen are very equipped to do what they do. They're called wise people, Chachamim. Betzawa leads the group. He has his helper. He has many helpers. He has, then there are men and women who, who get involved. They're called Chachamot, Isha Chachmat Leib. It's not so often in the Chumash that the women give really a little space to do something. They're full contributors to the, to the Mishkan, as are the men. And then the, the specialists who come in. And the head of the specialist is Betzawel, and Aholiyav is his main helper. So they're very gifted. Rachshav, Machshavot. I'm filled with Chachma, Bina, and Dat. These are all terms that are used by Betzawel and his helpers. It means they can make anything. They, they're really talented. They can make anything, except for one thing. There's one thing they can't make, which are the tablets. The Chumash says that the tablets are God's tablets and the writing is God's writing. Now why the Chumash said that? It's not just to make the point, which is true, that Moshe in breaking them is acting in a very audacious way. It's a chutzpah in a certain sense to break God's, God's wrote it, God's tablets. It's like taking a Sefer Torah and burning it or something or smashing it. That'd be, this is even worse. Says, God wrote it, I mean. Not just the software. God is the software. But it has actually an additional meaning, which is this. When Moshe breaks the tablets, Moshe comes down the mountain. He was given instructions how to build the Mishkan. God said to Moshe, build the Mishkan. 
make for me a holy place, I will dwell amongst them. So the idea of the Mishkan, which is to be the culminating story of the book, is that at the end of this book, we are living in a place where God is present. And that place is called the Mishkan. And this is, by ha- this is the, how you're going to build the house, God says. This is the house. And we have engineers, architects to build everything. But there's one piece that, only, that no engineer can build, which is the tablets. Which is, as I began this morning, the critical, most critical piece of the Mishkan. Because the tablets are inside the ark from which God speaks. Presumably, if you have no tablets, you don't have much of an ark. An ark is a box to house the tablets. But if you don't have the tablets, what, what, there's no ark. There's no ark. It means I will speak to you from above the, from, from above the kaporet, above the ark, between the two kruvim. So when Moshe breaks the tablets, what is Moshe doing? He's making it impossible to build the Mishkan. That's the point of, that's the point of the breaking the tablets. You can't build the Mishkan. If you can't build the Mishkan, you can't have God in, in, your, in, your, in your presence. So that, when you read the two stories together, suddenly, the story within a story, suddenly, it takes on a completely additional, not a contradictory meaning, but an additional meaning and one of great significance. Whenever you have stories within stories, and that's a device that we have elsewhere. It's not just in one place. I can give you two other examples of stories within stories without getting into all the details of it. But I'll give you two examples. Two rather famous stories. One, I'm not going to get into it all. The story of Jacob wrestling with, the, uh, with this angel. One of the more significant stories of the Torah. One might say the most significant. Who knows? It's up there near the top of the list. Jacob wrestling with the angel is a story within a story. That story is in the middle of another story, which is Jacob's confrontation with his brother. Jacob sends messengers to find his brother. His brother is coming towards him. Jacob is concerned. And Jacob prepares himself for war, for all eventualities. And then he, everybody else crosses over to the other side. And then, at the end of chapter 32, Jacob is left alone, and a mysterious person wrestles with Jacob until the dawn. So that story is a story within a story and the important point is that this, when he finally meets his brother Esau Jacob actually recalls the episode of wrestling with this mysterious Ish right? Which he says I've seen God face to face. Jacob recalls that story as he talks to Esau take my gift. Ah, no, no, no you keep your own gifts. I don't need it. Thank you very much. I have so much. No, please accept my gift. Please accept me seeing you is like seeing the face of God right so the point is you've just seen the face of God and Jacob's all I've seen God face to face so you, Jacob is recalling the, the story of wrestling with the Ish which he says wrestling with God when he meets his brother Asaph means the two stories are bound together you have to read one story in light of the other I'll give you another example actually an excellent example there's another famous story within a story most people know the story I'm going to mention, but they don't realize it's a story within a story. One of the most celebrated stories of the book of Shmuel, maybe the most famous one, David and, and uh, Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba is a very well-known story. Chapter 11 of Second Samuel. So the story is well-known. But when does that story take place, David and Bathsheba? David and Bathsheba takes place the chapter begins, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. It came to pass at the turn of the year when kings go to battle. 
that David sent out the soldiers, the general of the soldiers, his commander-in-chief, he sent them all out, and they besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem. So this story begins by saying that it came to pass at the turn of the year, as chapter 11. What is chapter 10 of Samuel? What is chapter 10? Chapter 11, I said. I said chapter 11 of Second Samuel is David and Bathsheba. I said chapter 10 is actually the beginning of the story. The story does not begin with David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba is a story within a story. The story begins, actually a very, very important point, the story begins with a war between the people of Ammon and, 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 and uh, Israel. That's how the story begins. Now, how, why does Israel get into a war with Ammon? What happens? This is all a digression, but it's related to the larger literary point, which is very important. Stories within stories. I want to give you need to show you how stories within stories, how one story actually is, is uh, instructive, illuminating how it helps us understand much better the other story. The story of David and Bathsheba, which is a very famous story, is this. As chapter 10, what happens is the king of Ammon dies. That's how the story actually begins. The king of Ammon dies. His name happens to be Nachash, snake. So snake dies. When snake dies, and we know that Nachash, Ammoni, was the one who fought against Saul, trying to disrupt Saul's kingship. Strangely enough, when Snake dies, king of Ammon, what does David say? His son's name is Hanun. David says, I, want to, I must send messengers to console uh, Hanun. His father was very good to me. We have no reason, we have no evidence in the book of Samuel that his father was good to him or not. We know he was bad to Israel, but okay. So David sends messengers to console Ammon. That's how the story actually of David and Hashem begins. So you might say to yourself, what a nice mitzvah. Yichum Avelum is a good mitzvah, you know. The only problem is, of course, I can't get too deeply into Shmuel, but it's, it's always interesting. The problem is, in sending his consolation to the king of Ammon, he is violating a verse in the Torah. Because the Torah says about the Ammonites and the Moabites, it says... They should not enter into your congregation, even the 10th generation, for two reasons. First of all, they didn't give you bread and water when you left the land of Egypt. Ammon and Moab are our, are, our, are our cousins. They didn't give you bread and water when you left Egypt. And not only that, they hired Bilam to curse you. So the Torah says in Devarim, chapter 23, Seek not their good and welfare. Koyomecha, all of your life, Leolam, and uh, forever. Don't get involved with them. That's what the Chumash says. Don't get involved with Ammon. Don't get involved with Moab. They're no good. Stay away. What does David do? Strangely enough, he sends consolers to console the son of Snake. King of Ammon, his name is Snake. So when they arrive there, it's a bad idea. When they arrive there, when they arrive there, the people tell Chanun. So I'm not making this up. It's right in the text. You can see for yourselves. They say to Chanun, why is David sending consolers? He was such a lover of your father? <coughs> so, probably these are spies. Probably these are spies. So when they get to, uh, the consolers come there, 
they take off, they cut off, I think, half their clothing, half their beards, and they send them away. They're in disgrace. When David discovers this, he mobilizes his army to fight against Ammon. That's how the story of, that's how the war against Ammon begins. Okay? Then Israel, it's a very dangerous war. Israel almost loses the war. It's a very tricky business. Ammon has allies, but Israel wins the first round. That's chapter 10. Chapter 11 begins, and it came to pass at the turn of the year when kings go to battle, David sends out the troops again. But David stayed in Jerusalem. The point being that this war is a continuation of the previous war. But at the time when kings go to battle, David doesn't go himself. David just sends out his general, etc. And in this particular case, and this is an important point, but in the previous story, how do we get into this war in the first place with Ammon? Who's responsible for getting us into war with Ammon? It's David himself. David's own stupidity gets us into war with Ammon. So you would say that he's the most responsible. In this particular case, he's responsible for the war, but for whatever reason, he doesn't want to get involved. He stays back in Jerusalem. That's where he sees Bathsheba. That's where he sees Bathsheba, because he sleeps in the daytime, it says. He wakes up at twilight, walks on the roof, he sees this woman. We know the story. Now here's the point I want to make about the David Bathsheba story. Meanwhile, there's a war going on. There's a war going on in which David, it's fair to say, has a zero interest. About being polite, it's a zero interest. In fact, he has only one interest in the war. He wants to use the war to kill Bathsheba's husband, which he ends up doing. He ends up, he ends up killing more people too, but he ends up... That's his... Only in the chapter, that's the only time he has an interest in the, in the war. Afterwards, meanwhile, the war is going on. After Uriah is killed, so as soon as Uriah is killed, David marries Bathsheba, who's pregnant with his child already. And then the prophet goes to David, one of the more famous stories of the Bible, and tells David off, and essentially says to David, you're finished. God, I chose you, says God, to be the king. You're through. You have degraded God. You have disgraced God. You have killed this man. You took his wife. David says, I have sinned unto the Lord. Okay, you're not going to die. Somehow your kingship means your kingship is somehow will manage to move forward. That's the story. That's almost, that's chapter 11, chapter 12, Nathan. At the end of chapter 12, is the point I want to make. At the end of chapter 12, very end of chapter 12, the general, Yoab, is winning the war. He sends a message to David. He says, you better come to the battlefield now. We're about to win. I want you to get the credit. So David goes to the battlefield, they, king, they kill the king of Ammon, they take the crown on his, of Ammon, king of Ammon, and they place it on David's head. And the point over here is, these are two stories that the book of Shemuel wants us to read together. In other words, the, suddenly putting the crown on David's head at the end of, this, of the end of the second chapter carries with it a completely different significance, because only the reader knows the truth, which is that in the middle of this battle, very far from the battlefield, David actually lost the kingship. The prophet says to David, you're finished. You have degraded God. The prophet says this twice earlier in the book of Shmuel. First to Ali the priest, and then to Saul. You're out. Goodbye. You were chosen. That's true. Being chosen doesn't mean it's eternal. It's, it's always contingent. So you're finished. But in the case of David, somehow... 
through his confession perhaps or whatever it's not a problem now he's able to actually even though he loses the kingship in a certain sense he actually gets it back so when you read the stories together suddenly the story of David and Bathsheba is illuminating the end of chapter 12 where David puts on the crown but also conversely the David's uh, I say malfeasance negligence in not getting involved in the war is highlighted by the, by the first chapter which says but this war is, he created the problem to be it's not a normal war this is a war which is a product of David's violation of what is of scripture black on white don't ever get involved with Ammon because they're no good but David thinks he's going to somehow for whatever his political reasons he's going to it's going to be okay with him you know he knows better he can deal with the Ammonites you know what I mean and of course it backfires because there's a war and then this very war that David begins he somehow is absent from the war so my point is it's about stories within stories let's get back to our story within stories our story within stories is the golden calf the golden calf is a story within a story and the larger story is the Mishkan what the golden calf has done essentially is to preclude the building of the Mishkan because the only way to build the Mishkan is to get the tablets but the tablets are the work of God God does not appear to be in the mood to give Israel any second set of tablets if God initially wants to destroy Israel okay, Moshe placates God, that's true but now God will say to Moshe in chapter 33 okay, people have been punished I, you can take the people into the land I'm not interested in going with you have a nice life off you go, sail into the sunset but it's without me I have no intention of going with you that means in our language there will be no Mishkan and there can't be one unless God ascends to give a second set of tablets and there's no reason to believe as you first read the Chumash or up to chapter 33 that God has the slightest inclination to give the second set of tablets that's the deep significance of a story within a story and I would add one last point before you make your comment that when you read the book of Devarim the Golden Calf episode of chapter 9 and 10 there it's missing there you don't really have a story within a story it's a very different story over there but the idea that the breaking of the golden cliff has precluded the Mishkan that I don't think is so it's not conspicuously there I'm not sure it's there altogether what did you want to say? Uh, not a comment but a question yeah uh, you, the example you gave about Sheva beginning with David's error in sending condolences yes. and they're being insulted and then as revenge she fights them and then in the middle is Bathsheba and he sends Uriah yes. that is a continuous story what strikes me here the Torah is so succinct and I would like your comment if you care to make one it's almost identical when, as you said so this is a little bit repetitious and uh, what is the significance of that because it's very little extra words significant. you're asking that about the golden calf you're asking yeah. about the Mishkan why well, did the Torah the first they describe it how to make the Mishkan right. then you have the golden calf then it's almost like the same thing this is what they built that's right I mean you alluded to it but I just thought well that's a question apart from anything I said that's a question in general yeah. why is it when it comes to the Mishkan I wouldn't say it's only the Mishkan, but the Mishkan is certainly true that we have such, uh, I would say, 
we have so much, so many words, and in the case of the Mishkan, we have a, a virtually a word-for-word repetition. Right. So, I think there are any number of possibilities. You know, um, it's clearly a stylistic thing. It's also true of Solomon's Temple. At Solomon's Temple, there is a lot of language. Solomon's own prayer is very, very, very long. Given by biblical standards, these uh, are chapters that are repetitive and, and lengthy. So what is that about? So uh, there are a number of possibilities. I don't have any one particular point of view. Clearly it's related in, I would say that, the, I would say two things. First of all, that when it comes to the Mishkan, which is about God's house, I would say the text is very effusive. Because as if to say that it's like, it reminds me very much of the prayer Nishmat Kochai. One of the main themes of Nishmat Kochai is no matter how much we say, we can't say enough. And yet it's a very long prayer. We say a lot relative to others. So it's this interesting business of praising God forever with the the recognition that as much as we say, we can't really praise properly. So maybe the Mishkan is related to that in terms of the there's something about the Mishkan. We may not be so excited about the details of the Mishkan, but the Chumash seems very excited about it. And the same thing is true of Solomon's Temple. It seemed to revel in the, uh, in the uh, details. That's point number one. Point number two, specifically in terms of the Mishkan, which is different than Solomon's Temple, I think part of the point is, and this is an important point, one of the big emphases in the Mishkan is that God commanded A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever, all these details... I think what the Torah emphasizes very, very strongly, both by length, by repetition, by use of the, the word constantly, they did as God commanded, that the idea of the Mishkan is to carry out exactly what God has commanded. The idea of, yes, it is a space for God to dwell amongst us, but the only way we can make that possible is by adhering very closely to exactly what God says to do. If you do otherwise, you get in deep trouble. The best evidence would be the story we read last week. Nadav and Aviyu. Nadav and Aviyu, what was their problem? They brought it a sacrifice. Asherot Siva. That God did not command. And they met with a, in a very bad, uh, had a bad ending to that story. So, the idea that, that when it comes to carrying out, when bu- building God a place, that it's only, you can only do so if God has actually commanded you to do it, and you've got to do it the way God commands you to do it, that's certainly true of the Mishkan in space. I wouldn't limit it to the Mishkan, by the way. I would say that a story that, for example, speaking of the book of Samuel, when David decides to build God's temple, David says to the prophet, it's not right. God, I, God lives in a bunch of curtains, and I'm living in a mansion. That's not right. So the prophet says, Nathan says, do whatever. You're right, God is with you. That night God appeared to Nathan and said to David, have I told you to build me a temple? You don't volunteer to build temples. The point is, only, only God's commands, because otherwise it would be insolence, arrogance, for the human being, I'm going to build God's house. It's a chutzpah. So therefore, I would say over here, in the case of the Mishkan, there are two points. One is, you have to be commanded, but more importantly, I think, in locally, in terms of the Mishkan, the golden calf it, is very similar to the Mishkan, but it's something that God has not commanded you to do. When you start building God's places that God has not commanded you to build, you run the risk of overstepping the bounds. You run the risk of, I would say, because uh, actually putting God inside a house is very confining and very problematic. So if God tells you to do it, that's one thing. But the idea, I'm going to build, I live here on, you know, 
I'm on Park Avenue and 54th Street. It's not right. God can also live on Park Avenue and 54th Street. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Or even, or even uh, who knows, even Sutton Place. Who knows where? But the point is, there's a chutzpah to that. And that's what God is picking up. God says, you're going to build me a house? Are you kidding? Well, who, who asked you? And, 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 and there's no equivalency. That's what God says. So, I think over here, the Chumash very much emphasizes that it's got to be exactly as, as one is commanded. Having said all that, there is another dimension to the Mishkan, which is having said that, you do what God told you to do. Interestingly enough, the Chumash places a big emphasis on the ability of the people who are building it to build a very beautiful house. It's not that they just follow, you know, follow the instructions, anybody can do it. No. People that do it are called wise people. They're filled with wisdom. They're filled with skill. So it's, it's a combination of the command, but there's also the human input, which is very important. And I think that is very true. That so stylistically, and it's, it's different. There's no doubt about it. The ones who noticed this, in terms of style, were the Bible critics, of course. And they actually make a very important point. They push the study of Torah forward because they're noticing different styles. It's true. And when you come to the Mishkan, there is a kind of a language of language of maybe excess. I'll tell you what else you have it, by the way. You have it in uh, Begilad Esther. Begilad Esther, you have it in space from beginning to end. That's how it begins. Not just it's the parties and it's not just the parties. It's beyond that. Even the, the, the words, it's constant in the Megillah, constantly, Teferet, Kedula, Yakar, Teferet, Bizayon, Vakatsef, it's constant, and especially the first chapter with his palaces. So the palaces are essentially his version of, of the temple. That, that's the point. But you have that extent. The, the writer of the Megillah picked this up. Yes? And, and don't we also have that in, in uh, Vayikra? We do have it in Vayikra, but we have it more here because it's completely superfluous. The Torah could have said in one verse, and Betzalel and everybody else did as God had commanded. And we know what God commands because in six chapters it spells it out. So the question was, why is there a need to repeat the six chapters? And that's and repeats them. I wouldn't say it's 100% identical, but it's 98% identical. 98% of it is... It's like Philip Glass. Right? It is the same. I'm not familiar with Philip Glass, but it's, 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 a rep, it's repetitious. It's totally repetitious. So, therefore, it's repetitious for a reason. The, the Torah is reveling in these, in these details. Okay, now, let us begin with chapter 33. This is very central. Yeah, very central is the story. Chapter 33 is this. Vayidabir Hashem Moshe. God said to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people that you took out of Egypt. To the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. So, first of all, the first verse is very striking because earlier in chapter 32, Moses and God had a debate. God said to Moshe, go down from the mountain. The people you took out of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. And Moshe says to God, excuse me, with all due respect, that's not exactly the truth, that I took them out of Egypt. You took them out of Egypt. You took them with great miracles and great wonders with an outstretched arm. Don't put it on me that I took them out. You're responsible. You took them out. 
God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy them, and this and that. Moshe goes down. Moshe is a civil war. We discussed all that. And now, chapter 33, God returns back to God's initial theme. Go back, bring the people up to the land. Before it was go down, now it's go up. Bring them up to the land that I swore to give to Abraham and Yaakov. I will give it to their descendants. But the people that you took up out of Egypt, that's how it starts. So God already is distancing God from them. You know, very good motion. They you should live and be well. Take them up, and you know. And I did. And I, you're right. I did make you. You corrected me. You, you correct. I accept your correction. You know, I stand corrected. Says God, I did promise to give the land to Abraham, Yisroel, and Yaakov to their descendants. I know you're not interested yourself. So the descendants of the Jewish people. So I have to give them the land, and I'm going to make. I'm going to keep my word. I will send before you an, 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 a, a, an angel. A messenger. And this Malach will chase out and mention six nations are mentioned. Kanani, Amori, Chiti, Prizi, Chibi, and Yehusi. So I'm going to fulfill my, I'm going to keep my word. Give them the land. And I'm going to bring them, says God in verse 3, I will bring them to the land flowing with milk and honey. That's a description that we had earlier in chapter 3 at the burning bush. I'll take them out of a suffering place of Egypt to a good and broad land, to a land of Zavarcha Lavudvash. And then God says, For I will not go up in your midst. Referring to verse number 2. I'm going to send my angel, but it's not going to be me, says God. It's the angel instead of me. And, and God gives a reason. It's not because, uh, you know, I'm going to explain it, says God to Moshe. Kiyam Kshayorefata. For you are a stubborn people, stiff-necked people. Pen lest I consume you, I destroy you along the way. So God is explaining. He says, look, it's very simple. If I travel with you together, I know the people. They're going to make mistakes. And God says that I, you know, I have a bad temper. I'm, I, I, mean, I get very angry. And when I get angry, I do things that are very destructive. So why should we do this? Let's, well, let's, we can't... Why should, I don't want to destroy you. And I want to keep my promise, also says God. I did keep a, make a promise. I keep my word. So, best way is, I'll send my angel. And the angel will be more tolerant than me. The angel looks the other way. And this way, God's destructive power will not accompany the people. First point I want to make about this, just a point of clarification. These clarifications, I'm not going to over-clarify it because it will take us too much time. Chapter 33, God mentioned an angel. I don't believe that the angel of chapter 33 is the angel of chapter 23. There's an angel earlier. The angel earlier, what is this? That's the 23? Yes, it is. I do. 163. 163. Right after the code of Mishpatim is given, the book of the covenant, in verse number 20 of chapter 23, God said to Moshe, Behold, says God, I will send an angel before you to guard your path. And to guide you to the place that I have prepared for you. Verse 21, Be careful. Be careful to obey his voice. Do not defy him. 
He will not bear your sins. Kishmi because my name is uh, in him. So that angel in chapter 23, there are two kinds of angels, two kinds of rep- God's representatives. Sometimes the representative is in place of God. You know, sometimes people send delegations. You know what I mean? They send representatives. Sometimes it's clear the representative is in place of the person. The person, for whatever reason, can't go. So the person sends someone else, and that person is the full authority of the one who sent him. Sometimes it's clear that the person who's being sent is Dafka, because the other guy doesn't want to show up. You have this in politics all the time. Somebody comes to visit a country. Maybe the president's angry at him for whatever reason. So he sends somebody else to meet him, some low-level person. That's instead of... But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes, actually, the one who wants to meet him can't meet him for whatever reason. And then the one who comes is not a slight, I'm not going to go, but rather fully represents the one. Who, so there are two kinds of malachim, two kinds of messengers. On, on, on its face, the messenger of chapter 23 actually is God within the messenger. Because that's what it says. Be very careful with this messenger because he's not going to, if you sin, you're going to be in deep trouble. Why? Kishmi Bikirbo, in my, my name, or my, my presence, I would say, is Bikirbo, is within him. That's chapter 23. But in chapter 33, it sounds very different. I'm going to send my angel, because if I go with you, you're going to be in trouble. I'll destroy you on the way. But this way, the angel is much more tolerant. We have a tolerant angel, who doesn't, you know, looks the other way, doesn't have the force that I have, the power... So it sounds like two kinds of angels. But the point of chapter 33 is that the angel of 33 is instead of, is instead of God. The question as to whatever happened to the angel of 23, to that promise, I will send my angel before you, is a very interesting question. And the one who deals with it, actually many deal with it, the one who prominently deals with that problem, not surprisingly, is the Ramban or Torah. The Ramban asks the question, whatever happened to that angel? And the Ramban proceeds along two interesting lines. One is a literary line, very interesting, and he has a Kabbalistic line as well. It's also very interesting. So that's the Ramban. But let's, for our purposes here, let's say that, leaving out angel of chapter 23, the angel of 33 is instead of God. It's not God in the guise of an angel. It's instead of God, and the reason is, says God, very explains. Because I am a, you know, powerful God I have a temper and uh, if I go with you on the path I'm going to destroy you so the derech is always a place of travel transition, danger so it's best off without me says God we can be good friends you know from a distance but together we're going to be trouble That's, I'll be trouble for you says God therefore you won't be trouble for me. I mean, you'll aggravate me, that's true, but you won't destroy me. I'll destroy you. So therefore, let's leave it at that. Let's part ways, in a sense. But I keep all my promises, says God. Yes? What are these angels? Can anyone see them or hear them? Or are you just supposed to know that they're there watching you? I have absolutely no idea. In the, I would say there are many kind of angels. The word angel means a messenger. When Jacob wrestles with this mysterious being, Jacob understands that that he's wrestled with God. I have seen God face to face. Sometimes the, sometimes, the, sometimes the human being can also be an angel. 
For example, when Joseph searching for his brothers, a man finds him and says to him, where are you going? What are you searching for? I search for my brothers. Oh, they've left. They've gone to Dotan. So this man, this Ish, is sending him to his brothers, but really sending him out of the land. Because when he, once he walks there, they see him from a distance, conspire to kill him. He ends up in Egypt. So I would say that angels, there are many different kinds of angels. Sometimes the angels take human form. Sometimes they appear to be specifically designated by God. It's very hard to know. When Abraham has the three angels coming to his house, it's very hard to know. And I would say that looking at different texts, I think they suggest different things. So that's a very, you're asking a very important question. And I think there's, you know, I have a particular way of reading certain texts, but some people don't. I find this, you know, too audacious to say, to take it literally, but uh, it's it's very hard to know who this angel is. It doesn't sound like, sometimes it doesn't sound like just another person. It sounds like some kind of angelic being, and sometimes it sounds like a person. It's very hard to know, so you have to do an exhaustive study of the Bible to see how this word Malach appears. For example, with Bilam you have it. When he's traveling, it says there's an angel who stands on the road, right, with an outstretched sword. The donkey, the Aton, sees, sees the angel, sees this ish. Bilam doesn't see it. If it's just a normal guy standing on the road with a sword, how can he not see it? I mean, maybe it's, it's hard to believe it's sort of an obstructed view. It sounds like it's something that a normal you wouldn't see. It sounds like you have, like for example, visions of, visions of God. Moses sees or perceives God, however we understand it. The Rambam, of course, doesn't think you're actually seeing it in the sense of seeing something. The Rambam understood it as perception. That's the Rambam. But that doesn't mean that's what the Torah seems to be saying. That's, that's, you're asking big questions, but, but the, and important ones. But for our purposes, limited purposes, the important point over here is when God says to Moses, I'm sending my angel, God is saying, I'm not going with you. Which we translate into, there's no Mishkan. Because God, Vishachanti Betocham. So the message is, you can possess the land, milk and honey, but you can't have me with you. And I would add another detail over here, which is important. The land of Israel, the land of Canaan, has different descriptions in the book of Exodus. There's one set of descriptions in chapter 3 and one set in chapter 6, which we studied. Milk and honey appears in chapter 3 in the context of I am taking them out of a suffering land, a land of suffering, a land of oppression, a land of narrowness. I'm taking them out and bringing them to a good and broad land inhabited by powerful nations flowing with milk and honey. That's chapter 3. In chapter 6, when God speaks about the covenant, there's no milk and honey mentioned. There's not even a good and broad land mentioned. What it is, is a land, of, a land that I've swore to give, a land of their sojournings, a land which is a connective to God. That's a very different picture. So over here, the land of milk and honey is chosen very carefully, I think, to say they can have milk and honey, but they can the, the land as a spiritual place, as a connective to God, that they can't have. It's not going to work, because to connect to God, and you want to connect two parties, you need two parties to be interested. One of the two parties is not really interested. That's a sulk. What? It's sulking. 
Oh, God puts it in terms of it. It is represented in very human terms, but God says, "Listen, it's not going to work out because we don't want to have fights." Right? It's a separation. It's a, it's a separation. We don't want to fight. You know, it's better this way. Better for all parties concerned. They'll get their milk and honey. They get their grand. That's what God is saying. Yeah, Avra, what is it? So in both this chapter and in 23, God's role is the same. God is going to be the force that destroys these people that are currently in the land. But it's a little confusing because when they are going actually to possess the land, there are enemy tribes still there. It doesn't actually mention destroying them over here, by the way. In this verse, it doesn't say I'll destroy them. So I'll chase them out. I'll drive them out. It doesn't say destroy. But, yeah, in each case, God is involved in one form or another. But here, right, it, it is put, it's put in first person. I will send my angel and I will drive them out. But it sounds like I will drive them out via the, via the angel. The angel is some kind of a power, a force, that assists you in driving out these peoples. It doesn't say how exactly it's going to happen. So God is involved, I guess, in some sense in both stories, but in one case, directly involved in the second. My point is, I think it's when you read it, it's fairly obvious that the import of, this, of these verses is, I'm not going with you. That's the key point. I'm not going in your midst. Period. Remember that the Mishkan is very much in our midst. The Mishkan is betoch. Bishachanti betocham. Now what does betocham mean? That's a very good question what the word toch means. The word toch, betocham, in their midst, has actually two different possible meanings. It's very hard to know. It can mean in the midst, that's one possibility, betocham. Betoch means inside something. So I have a table over here, think of it, this book is betoch, in a sense, it's inside, it's inside the space. That's one meaning of betoch. But then betoch has another meaning. For example, in the story of the Garden of Eden, we have the snake. The snake says to the woman, I heard you can't have any fruit. You're not allowed to eat fruit. Oh no, says the woman, that's not true. We can eat fruit. It's just from the tree that's betochagan we can't. Only from the tree that's betoch. What do you mean the tree that's betoch? All the trees are betochagan. What do you mean the tree that's betoch? Betoch means at the center. So the question is, the word betoch actually is ambiguous. It lends itself to two different meanings. Veshachanti betocham can mean within the within the within this within this group I'm there, or it can mean something very different, which is I'm at the center. The Mishkan was actually at the center. When you travel in the desert, in the middle is the Mishkan. So betocham actually sounds like I'm at the center. And it, my point about it is not about geography, where God is located on the parade. It's more conceptually the idea of traveling with God in the desert is God is at the center. The idea of traveling into the land with God is that God is in the center. But now what God is saying, I'm not at the center. In fact, I'm barely on the, on the periphery. But I'll send somebody else. So it's a, it's a rejection, God's rejection of the people. That's what's very important over here. On the other hand, if I offered you this, kind, you know, I say, look, I'm supposed to accompany you and settle you into, but you're going to travel to this land. You have a beautiful home. You have peace and security. And milk and honey I can't go but that's what you're going to give you so you might say we might all say well that's pretty good you know that's great we can't have everything right you know 80% it's pretty good you know what a gift thank you so much it's a wonderful thing 
That's what we might have said. That's not what the people said, though. It's very, this is what's interesting. It's very pivotal. The people say something different. The Torah said when the people heard this they heard the bad news they mourned so we have mourning over the bad news and the mourning means they didn't place ornaments maybe jewelry they didn't put on their ornaments they took off their ornaments that's what it says so the first point over here this is actually we come to a very tricky business in one second but the people are interpreting this as bad that's the first point that already says something yeah. what's so bad it's pretty good now, the people if God won't go with us this is not good and the manifestation is a they're mourning it was a very powerful word they mourn and it takes in the, and also they don't put on their ornaments they don't dress up we are reminded of course of the golden calf the golden calf was built with the jewelry Parkun is Zahav they didn't give away all their jewelry that's clear but you don't need all the jewelry to build one golden calf but, but they have other jewelry other ornaments of all kinds they don't put on the ornaments as a sign of mourning right. so the people have expressed when they hear this bad news they've expressed their distress but God has said in verse number 3 I can't go with you or I'll destroy you on the path so we seem to be at an impasse over here because God can't go with them on the other hand the people are very sad they're mourning so God responds to the, to the people's not putting on the ornaments God said to Moshe say to the people you are very stubborn if I go amongst you even for a moment I will destroy you now uh, take off your take off your ornaments take them off you and let me think what I should do so the verse this verse raises the following problem among others which is this God says in verse number 5 tell the people take the ornaments off you and let me consider what to do but verse number 4 says the people who really took did not put their ornaments on so what do you mean take them off they already are off they're not putting on their edyo their edi they're not wearing these jewelry ornaments finery whatever it is so what does it mean to say in verse number 5 so if you have different translations you'll see that they translate the verse differently we have the JPS as one translation but the Koran Bible has a different translation the Koran Bible JPS translates verse 5 the Lord said to Moses say to the people you are a stiff necked people if I were to go into your midst one moment I would destroy you now then leave off your finery and I will consider what to do to you actually personally I like this translation very often I don't care for the JPS here I think it's right right the JPS trend distinguishes between they didn't put on the jewelry they take to be a stronger statement okay it's not on now but keep it off leave it off the translating it doesn't fit technically speaking means to bring down 
but the sense of it is clear. So I think that that's how JPS understands it. The other translation, if you have anybody have the, the Jerusalem Bible, Koran Bible, they start this way. Verse 5 starts this way. For the Lord had said to Moses, For the Lord had said to Moses, You are a stiff necked people. I remember this, the rest of the details. If I go on your list, I'll destroy you, leave off your finery, I'll consider what to do. The key distinction between them is this. The, J, the current translation says, For the Lord had said to Moses, which follows the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says that the verse 5 comes before verse 4. Verse 4, they took off their jewelry because in verse 5, God had already said to Moses, Now, given the choice between the two, I'll put in my own two cents. I like the JPS translation much better, but there's a difference between them. I don't think the Ibn Ezra is correct over here, but there's actually a very important distinction between the two translations. The distinction is the taking off of the jewelry, the mourning, is the mourning or the taking off of the jewelry that is emblematic of mourning, is that something that God directed them to do? Or is it something they did on their own? If you read it the way we have it, in the order that we have it, it's not something they're commanded to do at all. God says, listen, go to the land, it's going to be good. I can't go with you, I'll destroy you. Sayonara. The people, when they heard this, saw it as evil. This is terrible. And they don't put on their jewelry. And then God said to Moshe, God sees the people are mourning. God said, oh, I see they're in great distress. I don't know what to do. But let me, let me think about it. Maybe I'll figure out a way. God, it's presented in very human terms. God is trying to figure it out because God sees the people actually are in mourning. As opposed to the other reading of the Ibn Ezra, which I don't care for, even though it fits grammatically better, which is, for the Lord had said to Moses. But then already the, the mourning and the taking off of the jewelry is already God-directed. Right? Anyway, go ahead. And if we see the jewelry as directly correct, connected to yes, sir. then what they're doing symbolically is saying, no, this really isn't important to us. We realize what right. really is important to us. That's right. I think the connection to the ego, I think, is pretty clear. It uses a different word. There it says, Nizmei Azahav. Here it says, Adi. I think Adi is, more, is, 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 a, is, a, is a broader term. That's why. Nizamim are particular pieces of jewelry, often earrings, right? Nizamim. But Adi is, I think, more all-encompassing. Not only did they, the earrings, but they had other jewelry, too. Maybe they had 20 different kinds of jewelry. There's all lists of jewelry in the Chumash. So, they, they're divesting themselves, and the God says, Horeid, and the next verse is very striking. So the Israelites, here they translate, strip themselves of their finery from Mount Chorev. It means from Mount Chorev on, they translate here. By it, we have three different words here to describe taking off of jewelry or finery or not putting on. We have Loshatu, we have Horeids, and we have Ayit Natsu. And what I would argue is the following, that this third word, Ayit Natsu, is very instructive. Because Vayit Natslu was a word that appears earlier in the book of Exodus. The, it appeared in the context of commanding the people to borrow or to take from the Egyptians 
various gold and silver and dresses and clothing. V'nitzaltem et Mitzrayim. V'nitzaltem et Mitzrayim. You will despoil or empty out Egypt. is a very striking idea, which goes beyond just take the jewelry off. It goes beyond keep the jewelry off. It's slu means to divest yourself. It means to say to put it aside. And here it is interesting that you're thinking about the golden calf. The golden calf was built from the gold we took out of Egypt. The golden calf, as we studied, meant that we're still in Egypt, actually. Spiritually, we haven't left. So the idea of the, the, the repentance, the, the step of repentance that's being described is set, taking all these adi, which is a general term for all the stuff we took out of Mitzrayim, all the fine stuff we took out of Egypt, and saying... We place it aside. Not just taking it off, leaving it off. But then we're emptying out our pockets. We're, we're, we're distancing ourselves. So it's a part of the repentance process is to try to distance ourselves from the negative elements of our past. That's what the people are doing. So they're going even beyond horaids. The people are taking... I think the point I want to push over here is that the people are going beyond even what God told them to do. They're really distancing themselves completely from this, from this, from this gold, from the finery, etc. And now the ball is in God's court, because God has said, "Let me consider what to do." But it doesn't appear that God actually knows what to do. God's in the story; it's presented very human terms. Someone has to help God out over here. So into the breach, with the two sides, they want to reconcile, but they can't figure out how to do it. If they don't want to reconcile, no one can, can ever do it. But if you want to reconcile, it's not impossible. So this is where Moshe Rabbeinu comes into the picture. This is where Moshe, this is a great moment. This is Moshe's great moment where he finds a way to reconcile God with the people. That's what the Golden Camp is actually about at, at its core. So what does Moshe do? So we have to look at these two very carefully. These are extremely interesting verses. The first step is verse number seven. Moses took his tent, means his own tent, and he pitched the tent far away from the camp. means far, Rachok is far away. And he called his own house, his own tent, he gave it a name. He called his own personal tent, Oel Moed, the tent of meeting. His own house. He calls his own house the tent of meeting, means meeting between God and somebody, Moses. And then it says, Hashem, those who would seek out God, So Moses, because remember, God is talking to Moses. So Moses is in constant contact with God. So Moses does a new thing. He takes his own tent, and he moves five kilometers away or something. He puts a big sign up. Tent of meeting. Oa Moed is synonymous in the Tchumish with the word Mishkan. So there is no Mishkan. God said, no Mishkan. I'm not going to go in your midst. So what does Moses say? Okay, you won't go in our midst. That's great. You're not going to dwell inside the city limits. Okay. So I take my own personal tent and I place it outside the city limits because we're still in constant contact. But the Torah adds, all those who would seek God could go to the tent of meeting that's outside the camp. So in other words, what Moshe does, first step, is to make God accessible. But not, not God has said, 
Moses is very clever. God said, I'm not going to be Bekir Bekha. Ki go ele Bekir Bekha. Bekeret. Bekeret means in the middle. Okay, you won't be in the middle. But you can still be far. Harcheik. But far away, but not too far. Far away that anybody who seeks God can find God. And here, there are two points I want to make about this uh, verse. One is that in a sense, Moses is doing two things. A, Moses is making God, is bringing God closer. God's not in heaven. God is a, few, a couple of miles down the road. There's the temple outside the camp. But Moses is doing something else also, which is he's testing the people. People are crying in their mourning. You know what I mean? You know, it's, it's like the guy says to his girlfriend, you know, he says, he's on the east side, she's on the west side. I love you with all my heart. I will walk through deserts and storms. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, except if it rains, you know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the story here. We still crying, we're crying. You're crying so much. You want to walk three miles? You can find God. But you have to be Mavakesh Hashem, those who are seeking God. So that's, Moshe is doing two things. It brings God closer. But also, he's giving the people an opportunity to actually walk the walk, quite literally in this case, to seek out God. And here is a very important point I want to make about what Moshe does. This is actually an interesting idea. In the Bible, there are, even the Bible, the Torah actually, has two holy spaces. Two holy spaces. One is called the Mishkan. Okay, the Mishkan is the holy space. Then when you get to the book of Dvarim, the Torah says when you come into the land, there's going to be a, a, a holy space that is designated. The Torah calls the holy space in the book of Dvarim, HaMakom HaShem Hashem, the place that God is choosing. And in the, later in the Bible, Solomon Shlomo builds this place. It's called the Temple. So we have a Mishkan and we have a Mikdash. So the way we usually think of it, the Mishkan is portable. The Mishkan in the desert is traveling with us. We travel with the Mishkan, it goes with us. That's the Mishkan. But when you get into the land, the Chumash says, then there won't be a portable uh, temple. And the temple is in one place. And the other Torah says, what do you have to do when the temple is in one place? So the Torah says, three times a year you have to go up to the place. And then the Torah says, that whereas in the desert, for example, when you want to eat a piece of meat, you bring a sacrifice. But when you come into the land, there's only one place. And it might be very far. The place is far away. You can slaughter animals even in your own courtyards, your own towns, your own gates, etc. So there's a Mishkan and a Migdash. The way we normally think of it is the Mishkan is preliminary. The story of the desert, before you get to the land, you have a Mishkan, it's portable. But then, ideally, you have, then later, you have a Mikdash. So the Mishkan comes first, the Mikdash is second. The Chumash actually says the opposite. The Chumash says the opposite. The Chumash says that before there was a Mishkan, there was a Mikdash. Right here. Moses took his tent, he placed it outside the camp, far away from the camp. Rachok, Archeik. That's how the Chumash describes the Mikdash. Kirchak mimcha makom, when it's far away. And what is the difference between the Mishkan and the Mikdash, actually. The difference is this. The Mishkan is always with you, actually. So the Mishkan represents God being with us all the time. That's the big plus of the Mishkan. The downside of the Mishkan 
is that it's there the whole time. That is to say, you never have to search for it. It's always there. Whereas the Mikdash, what the Chumash emphasizes in the book of Devarim, very strongly, is the idea of what they call Aliyah uh, Regal, of the journey on the festivals. Right? It's far away, but on three times a year you take the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage itself, the very journey itself, becomes significant. And the journey itself, one might sometimes one might say even maybe maybe even more important than getting there, is the journey, is the is the is the pilgrimage, the journey to go there. So like the the Muslims, Islam has that the journey, the travel, traveling, the, tra- the journey itself, which is probably based in one form or another, or maybe it's independent of. But the Chumash has it. The Chumash has the idea of the journey. The the point in the Chumash here, what's very striking. We always think of the Mishkan as being prior. But in point of fact, in the Chumash, the Migdash is prior because Moses took his own tent, he placed it out. There is no Mishkan yet. Mishkan is built in chapter 35. This is chapter 33. He took his own tent and he placed it far away and he says, whoever truly seeks God can can make the journey. So that's a very important point because what the danger with the Mishkan is that like with all things that we, if you get used to it it seeks to be novel and you don't actually appreciate it you take things for granted so the idea of the Mikdash what's special about the Mikdash is that it's very distant and in order to get there you have to make an effort to get there so that's very true even more broadly speaking you know it's that sometimes I would say from the standpoint of perception people are always in, 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 in inside a holy place they don't know what it means to be outside the holy place and when they find themselves outside suddenly they don't know how to deal with it whereas somebody who, who makes the journey who comes from a place and has to journey to get there typically has much more insight than the one who actually was always there the people that come to mind are Isaac and his wife Rebecca Isaac is blind he also is very holy He's, he speaks, God answers right away but Isaac is in, always in God's presence never leaves the land He's always in God's presence. Rebecca is the opposite. Rebecca lives, in, grows up in the house of Lavan. Some stranger comes to the house, and she says, "I'll, I'll travel with you. I'll make, take this journey." And then when she has a problem, she is expecting these. She thought one child is bouncing around inside. What's going on over here? But Hashem. She went out to seek God. Isaac is not a seeker of God. He never had to seek God. He doesn't have to seek God. Rebecca has to seek, and therefore, because she has to seek. She has certain insights that Isaac can't have. So in the Chumash, it's actually very striking. This is a, I think, a very telling uh, set of psukim over here. That Moshe is, in fact, uh, giving the people the opportunity to seek. That's what Moshe is doing over here. From the other side, Moshe brings God one step closer. And the point being that God said, I'm not going to be in your midst, okay. But what about not in your midst? And the not in your midst turns out to be Moses' own tent. Because God is perfectly happy to talk to Moshe. God just can't be Bekir Bechah. Be, 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 be okay. But not Bekir Bechah. So outside, that's the first step. The Chumash says, first of all, those who would seek God could go out to the tent. And then, in the next uh, three psukim, it says something else, additional, about finding God. It says, Vayakasait Moshe Oever when Moses would go out to the tent because remember Moshe is with the people most of the time so Moshe this tent is Moses doesn't always go to the tent he goes periodically to the tent 
when Moshe would go to the tent, Yokumu Kolam Vinitzfu Ish Petacha When Moses would walk out, the people would stand up by their own tent. Vibitu Achare Moshe Adboa Oela, they would gaze at Moses until he entered his tent. So in the Chumash, it sounds like there are two different ways to enter Moses' tent. One is to go there. But then there's, the Chumash is suggesting something else, I think, which is they're standing in there. Not everybody can always make the journey. But the point over here, there's another way to make the journey, which is the gaze, which is to look at the man, look at Moses making the journey and to vicariously, in some sense, or empathetically, make that same journey with Moshe by looking at him the entire time, by standing up at your own tent, by recognizing what Moshe is doing, by standing up and out of respect, I presume, by their own tent, and looking to Moses enters his tent. And somehow, by standing up and by looking, the Chumash is suggesting, that they are somehow connecting to his, to his journey. So there are two ways to do it. You can take your own journey. Sometimes you can't take the own, your own journey but you could somehow connect to others who are taking the journey. And then, when Moses would enter his tent, when Moses would enter his, his tent, the cloud would come down. The cloud represents God's presence. God would speak to Moshe. And you could see the cloud above the tent. When the people would see the cloud, they recognize God is present, people would bow down by their own tent. So the Chumash is connecting, both in terms of Moshe journeying, they would stand, then when they see the presence of God, they would from a distance pay homage, they would bow down by their own oil. So the Chumash, the connect, there's a connection between the oil of the people and the oil of Moshe. The Chumash is emphasizing the connection. Yes? Well, it's also interesting that it looks like the Chumash is, is emphasizing the fact that this process is creating like a holy community. Kol Ha'am is said twice right. in that sentence. Right. That's right. The point is that at the end of the day, that is the goal to create a holy community. And yes, God is still not in their presence because God had said earlier, that's not possible. Because if I go Bikirbam, so Moshe figures out a way to, on one hand, as you say very nicely, create this holy community which is connected to God at the same time it's from a distance which is essentially what you have later ideally in terms of the Mikdash which is far away but you visit several times a year it's the only place where you visit but as we'll see over here Moshe has not com- finished yet his plan yes so you right here. Um, so I see a kind of distinction here because it says first whoever so God would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Right. But it seemed, but this homage they're paying when Moshe goes, it almost seems to me that they are not going. I agree. They're not physically going. Some physically go. And many others who are not what they call Mavakesh Hashem personally are doing it through Moses. They're trying to connect up through Moses. I don't know if the Chumash is, I don't get the sense over here. That the Chumash is, is, is necessarily condemning the people that do this. On the contrary, it strikes me that the Chumash is both of these two descriptions of what the, the searchers do, but what the people do from their own place. Their own place, actually, I think, has, maybe Avril was getting at this, 
has a different advantage to it. In other words, each one is a plus, I think. The plus of Mivakesh shows that I'm willing to take the journey. That's to take this, right? So what the Chumash says later on, by the way, when you come into the land, because when you come into the land, there's only one, one, one holy place. Seek out the holy place and go there. So that's Shikhno Tidrishu is very similar with Josh and Livakesh are not identical but similar terms means to be searchers and seekers. But that the point I think that what Avra was getting at is that in the second description over here of looking from a distance, okay, what the Chumash emphasizes in the second instance is not Moses' tent actually. It emphasizes their own tent. Because in verse number 9, God would speak to Mo- in Moses' tent, but in verse 8, right, they would stand by their own tent. Moses goes to his tent, but God is there, and the people are in their own tents. But what the people are trying to do, in some sense, is to bring God into their tents. And I think that's a very important point, because in a, from a certain perspective, that's greater. Because the, the, the goal, Moses' goal over here is to bring God back inside, inside the, uh, the community. Moses' goal is not that Moses will be the holy guy outside. And those who visit can visit, you know. That's not Moses' goal. Moses' ultimate goal is to bring God inside. And the point I would make is that verses 8, 9, and 10, the, the emphasis in the Chumash is not so much that God is present in Moses' tent, which is true. The emphasis in the Chumash is that God is present in Moses' tent, but the people are standing by their own tents and somehow connecting to the fact that God is in that tent. The connection between the Petach of Moshe and the Petach of the people is what is being emphasized in verses 8, 9, and 10. And I would add that I think that point, which I like this formulation very much, is borne out by verse number 11. Because in verse number 11, the idea that verse 11 is God will speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend. It means that God is very at home in Moses' tent. And then it says, He would return to the camp. Who's he? Moses. I mean, it's actually not totally clear, but it's Moses would return to the camp. And Moses' servant... Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not leave, would not depart out of the tent. Yamish means to leave. But it's a play on the word Moshe. Your Joshua stands in for Moses. Right? Joshua stands, very similar to the angel standing in for God. Joshua stands in for Moses. Why must Joshua stand in for Moses, though? Because Moses goes back to the people. What, what you have over here is, as far as Moshe is concerned, this is setting up the next story. It's a dialectic. Moshe talks to God face to face. God speaks to Moshe in Moshe's tent. That's very lovely. But what the problem is that Moshe can't stay there. Why can't Moshe stay there? Because Moshe has to be with the people. Moshe goes back to the people. So when Moshe leaves, but God is always there. So someone has to replace Moshe. So that's Joshua. Joshua is his servant, his Misharet, his disciple. He stays, Mish. he doesn't depart. He, he plays Moshe's role. But he has to play Moses' role because Moses goes back to the people. So the point I'm making is that 
verse 11 is emphasizing the point that at the end of the day Moshe's goal is not simply to have a place outside Moshe moves back and forth so the Chumash is already suggesting based 8, 9, 10 and 11 they're suggesting that whereas Moshe brings God closer by pitching the tent outside the camp and makes God's presence possible, accessible but the ultimate goal is not the tent outside the camp the ultimate goal is the tent inside the camp and it makes the point in two ways A, because it emphasizes that the people are standing by their own tents and somehow connecting to Moshe's tent and B, that Moshe himself doesn't stay there Moshe actually goes back to the camp so Moshe has two I mean, Moshe, we say Moses has two commitments one commitment of Moses is to be with God that's what Mo, as one speaks to a friend the Chumash calls it face to face but the other is the commitment to the people so this sets up the second point yes what do you want well, what about Yoshua uh, if he's there in the tent when Hashem is speaking panim to Moshe is he there in the tent with Moshe doesn't sound that way to me it sounds like he's in the tent he's marking you know, he, the t- he's there as, to, as not to leave it empty but God God doesn't speak to Joshua face to face God speaks only to Moses face to face Joshua is a placeholder over here. Joshua is saying that Moses is, in a sense, Joshua represents Moses, but Moses can't be there. That's the point. Yeah. It sounds like it's almost like a farewell ceremony every time Moses leaves the camp to go back to the tent of the meeting. It's almost like a ceremonial thing. They all stand at their at the entrance of their own tent. And then they, when they see the pillar, they bow down. Uh, and uh, so, so that is one thing. And it's almost like this is a better plan than my going up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. That they see me. They see me go a distance. And it's almost like they're making sure they understand that he's leaving but they know that he's not going to abandon them okay that's and a good point they're making two separate points actually yeah well two separate points one is the ceremonial side of it okay but ceremonies are important ceremonies carry a meaning so the meaning is I think that I they think can connect to ceremonial is a pejorative term okay. no no I said I'm saying right ceremony is a positive but the other point that they can actually see him and he, and he comes back is a good point. Unlike the prior story where Moses leaves and they don't know if he's ever coming back, you get a sense over here of the back and forth. He's going out there, maybe because God is instructing him in some way, right? Since one talks to a friend, but it's not clear what the friend is saying. Friends can give you advice, friends can say many things, but Moses can't actually stay with... Moses... The Chumash did not say a, a friend... It's not innocent. In other words, there's a reason the Chumash says as a friend, which we'll get to very soon. In fact, we'll get to it. Oh my goodness, it's much later than I thought. Okay, but I want next week to finish the Golden Calf story. Let's, let's just pick up a couple more minutes over here with the next verses. These are some of the critical verses of the Bible right here. So Moses has accomplished one thing, which is God is much closer. God is not up in the heavens. God's a, while, a bit away, far from the camp. Not inaccessible completely. Now we come to very, very famous and difficult verses. Look here, says Moses. You have said to me, 
bring these people up. But you haven't taught me, Hodatani. You haven't let, let me know whom you are sending with me. You have said, I have singled you out by name. I know you by name. You have said to me that I find favor in your eyes. That's what you've said. That's what, so now, therefore, if in fact I have found favor in your eyes, teach me your ways. And I will know you in order that I find more favor in your eyes. And see here, this people is your nation. This little speech of Moses, verses 12 and 13, it begins with the word Re'eh and it ends with the word Re'eh. And in between the t- Re'eh and Re'eh, what is Moses saying over here? He seems to be saying different things. But the first thing he says is this. And we'll have to stop at this point. Next week we'll pick up from here and spend a lot of time on this. These are very difficult verses. But the first thing he says is, you said in the beginning of this chapter that you're sending an angel. You're not going to go because the people are going to make you very angry. You're going to lose your temper and destroy them and therefore you can't go in their midst. Okay, that's what you said. Now here's my point. That's as far as they're concerned. You're going to send an angel with them. But what you haven't told me is who you're sending with me. After all, I'm not the same. You love me. You said I find favor in your eyes. Yidaticha b'shem, whatever that means, we'll get to next week. I know you, I single you out by name. So forget them, forget them. Who are you going to send with me? That's the first thing he says. Not just, hope it's not just an angel. You're not going to go with me personally? And the second point he says is, not just who's going to go with me, but he added something else. Hodieni na I want to understand your ways. I want to understand something about you, drachecha. You have to try to figure out what that means to understand God's ways. Um, and then he says, in order that I know you and find more favor. What he seems to be saying is, if I understand your ways, I can truly find favor in your eyes. In other words, to truly be a servant of God, he says, I have to understand God. So please teach me, teach me more. I, I, I know something about you, but I don't know enough. I, in order to be a servant, I have to understand exactly your path, your ways. You want me to lead. So I need you to accompany me. And then he added strangely, and see here, these are your people. So what he's angling for, we'll get to next week. What is his agenda over here? We know his agenda. He has one agenda, to bring God back to the people. That's his agenda. Which he will succeed magnificently, but he has to negotiate with the God. He's a very good negotiator. And he uh, is presented in very human terms. God doesn't know what to do. I know what to do. Listen, we're going to fight. I'll destroy them. That's when Moses steps in. Moses is great, and he has. It's very clear what he wants. His goal is, his goal is to build the Mishkan. In the word, that's a goal, which means to have God in our presence. In order to do that, he has to somehow change God's mind. Not a simple task, and he's a very audacious plan over here. We'll get to it next week. These are, I think, arguably. I mean, without question, it's not arguably. This is one of the great passages of the Torah. See, a great in the sense of very significant. This is how Moses brings God back amongst the people and we'll talk about this next week.